Well, in my sermon on 1 Timothy chapter 1, two weeks ago, I spoke of the tremendous difference we experience between Mongolian culture and Mongolian church culture. Spiritually dark and cold outside, spiritually warm and light inside. Darkness and wounding going on outside, light and healing taking place inside. Into the darkness and the chaos, God said, let there be light. And it was beautiful to watch the light in the culture spread. Yes, God's word enriched and beautified this people, not by saying, hey, your culture is always right. But by saying so often, your culture is off the mark, here and here and here. And so as you come into God's household, trust God's ways are higher than yours. And just watch what happens. That's also what we can anticipate in DPC. And so we come to a culturally very challenging part of God's word today. I've been looking forward to next week for some weeks. (laughs) So let's do it, however, not as those whose loyalty to God is less than our loyalty to our cultural instincts. Paul tells us what today's chapter, chapter 2, is all about, very helpfully, a little bit further ahead in chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. He says, I'm writing you these instructions so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And so he assures us that the church is not our club with our rules, but is, verse 15, the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. His house, his rules, Some of them surprising, but all of them good. If there's one issue the world is confused about today, it seems to be in the area of male and female. Churches too have become confused about how to think about this. A young child was telling me of a school seminar they are in just in the last couple of months uh, on this topic of male and female and seeking to help the kids through this. Uh, The teacher said, you may be a boy, you may be a girl, You may not know what you are. It's very confusing, isn't it? And as as I heard that, I thought, well, I'm not sure the child, I don't know how confused they were, but certainly the adults teaching the kids may be making it confusing for the kids. What difference might being male and female make in church life? It's such a room, an area of room for growth, I think, in our society, and one that the church has much to offer. What is a man? What is a woman? What is a husband? What is a wife? These verses help us, I think. What does godly living look like for men and women in God's household? What picture, what blueprint does God provide? So let's dive into 1 Timothy 2. And in verses 1 to 7, we're given a picture of godly lives pleasing to our Saviour God. Paul calls the church to pray over all the strategies and priorities he could have given to the church through this letter. Surprise, surprise, we see it over and over and over again, don't we, that churches and Christians are called to pray, to occupy themselves with activities God insists are central, even if surprising in their apparent weakness. Prayer, word, fellowship. Paul urges the church, there's that word again we've noticed, verse 1, to pray. And he uses four nouns so we don't miss it. Three of them with closely overlapping meanings. Supplications, prayer, and intercession. These are words that ask God for things. 
And the last noun, thanksgivings, naturally follow, don't they, for toward a God who answers prayer and is always worthy of our thanks. So it's please, 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 and thank you. Godly voices saying, please, Father, never weary, God. And gratitude is always fitting, not to mention incredibly good for us. Get up early to pray if needed. Schedule in prayer above what seems more important. See how it goes to aim for more prayer time than screen time in the coming week. And I promise there'll be blessing in that. So what is being requested and what is the gratitude in relation to? Paul says to pray, verse 1, on behalf of all people and particularly to the king of kings for his influence over, verse 2, earth's kings and all of those in authority. Pray also that we, the church, may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness or respect or seriousness. The scriptures assure us that God works for good toward all he has made, Psalm 145, for example. And so we begin working with God, praying for good for our chaotic world. A peaceful life is considered a good thing in light of persecutions going on around the world. And more locally, there are church troublemakers that we saw in chapter 1. And so too, secondly, is a quiet life. I'm still some way away from retirement, but that sounds nice to me, a quiet life. It sounds relaxing, doesn't it? Almost a taste of Eden. A quiet life is important to note here because Paul will direct, direct women again to this same blessing and virtue of quietness in verse 11. And do you pray with Paul that we live a godly and dignified existence before God? Isn't that a great goal for us to pray about? Yes, prayer is responsible. If we live lives worthy of respect, prayer is responsible for that that we become a peaceful people of increasing substance and depth and gravity. God's men, God's women, God's children, God's household. Let's grow DPC in this area. These virtues are good not only for a first century audience, but are intrinsically good for humans. And so verse 3 uses the language of creation. that This is good and pleasing to God our Saviour. When we're living in Eden's sometimes surprising, good and pleasing ways, we experience harmony with creation's design. What God says is good about Eden also happens to be good for us. And so Paul will return to creation's Adam and Eve in verse 13, but Savior's, our Saviour's guidance for his creation flavours all of the verses in between. God is pleased with peace and restoration in the world just as he made it to be. And yet more than just having a nice nation, suburb, environment to live in, God wants the greatest restoration for our broken world. God, our saviour, verse 4, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. How on earth can sinners like us in the mess we've made for ourselves in this world, survive the consuming heat of a holy God. One's only hope, not in hell, but before hell, is God's mediator, Jesus who gave himself as your ransom. 
pray, church, Paul is saying. Saviour, save the humans. After 70 years of oppressive communism and the darkness of Buddhism for hundreds of years before that, Mongolians had had a bad run. And so the national church's motto, experiencing the blessing of new life in the Lord Jesus, came from Psalm 33. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, was their church's motto. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If you're lost, despairing, God wants to save you. You are hearing the invite right now. God wants all people to be saved. A friend of mine, after years of growing up in the church, going to church twice on Sundays, playing in an aged care place, um, music for the elderly there, mowing people's lawns, trying to be good enough for God, when he was a young adult, realized for the first time, recognizing he wasn't close to God, how he can become a Christian for the first time in his church life. He said it came as he went to a conference when he'd moved away from home in the country to Sydney. And the line that he heard in the conference was that salvation is not achieved. Salvation is received. And he said from that moment, everything changed and a living relationship with God began, a free gift. See the truth of it there in verse 5. God provides a mediator, your peacemaker. Verse 6, he gave himself for all people, you included. This was Paul's good news. No wonder he got fired up about it. Verse 7, he talks about his role. And it's our church's good news as well. From God, for you. Friend, say yes to God today if you haven't. And if you have, pass on God's good invitation to others. In 2 Peter, we saw that God's patience and and the troubles of the world that, that reflect God's patience with the world equals salvation. And here in 1 Timothy, the sentiment is, God saves, so church, you pray. Prayer and salvation are bound together into the one work. What dignity this God who wants to save gives our prayers? Want to be eternally influential? Then don't worry about the monuments, the legacy, the reputation for yourself. Pray. Pray for souls who will, as a result of your prayer, be eternally relocated. So there's the picture of what we as a church must focus on. Prayer, word, fellowship is our catch cry. And sex and gender issues can be raised safely here in this church, but aren't to distract us from God's saving work through us. If you've been a Christian for a long time and may have forgotten with much of the Australian church, Our saviour wants to save. Playgroup team, youth leaders, men and women, home groups, committee of management, elders, 1030 congregation. Our saviour wants to save. And that makes a big difference to our outlook and our engagement with the world that needs saving. May God strengthen us and may we strengthen ourselves in that conviction. We don't have to twist God's arm to save but we are to get on board in earnest. And so there's firstly, a picture of godly lives pleasing to our saviour God. Verses one to seven. Next point two, Timothy is to address the men in their gatherings. Verse eight. He writes, therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger, literally wrath, it's a strong word, without wrath or disputing. The first word here is therefore. Therefore, as we 
think about God's saving, praying household, then I want to say again, get along and pray, men. Don't neglect this work of all works. Not clenched fists or independent can-do hands in the church, but holy hands raised in prayer. I just finished reading 2 Samuel in my quiet times, and the obvious value of men in 2 Samuel seemed to me on first reading to have swords and spears in your hands. Josheb Barshebeth, one of David's mighty men, killed 800 soldiers, apparently, in one encounter with his spear. Now, wars come and go, but there is an older Eden manliness, largely untapped in our society, an ancient, peaceful manliness that is best seen when men pray. They know God, they are joined spirit to spirit and engaged in the highest and most noble of fights. The great battle for which Israel's enemies were merely symbols. The true battle every church fights is not against flesh and blood, but with a sword in hand. Now our church's mission is to rescue people from a tyranny worse than any church has ever any human eye has seen, that we resist Satan, we pursue godliness, and we'll see lost souls saved through our holy hands raised before God in prayer. No time for bitterness, no time for quarrelling, one-upmanship, who's the most impressive man, but the disarming, powerful activity of fellow men before God. I don't know if you've noticed, but prayer is also wonderfully humbling. It's uncompetitive. It's unifying. It allows men to better express Eden's level of care for other humans, perhaps a weakness some of us men have, expressing care for others and love towards people. It recalls our kingdom uh, priorities as we bring God into our conversation. Thinking about Paul, what a blessing it would have been for Timothy and for every pastor to lead a group of sincere praying men. What leaders they will be in their marriages and their families and their churches. What good God would do in a church with men praying. Let your strength not be in what your hands try to accomplish. Let the strength of your hands be all about what you call on God to do as you raise them. Next in point three in the outline, a word to church women. The therefore men is joined in the same flow of thinking to I also want the women or literally likewise women, wives. The vision of God's household reveals men praying and it has an inspiring and again perhaps surprising picture of the women too. Of the things I might say to women, this probably wouldn't make the list. Verse 9, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, Paul isn't saying that women aren't or shouldn't ever dress up, but he's pointing to what matters more. That's the point, I think. And I'm glad that we as a church typically don't wear what is being worn at Bondi Beach or the Academy Awards. We're a family with priorities not to tease or entice men who are wired to desire the female form when it meets their eyes. 
nor is it to impress or compete or to say image and beauty are important if you want to belong here. The words in the ESV are respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Being a woman who reverences God impacts more than clothing, of course. And so Paul points in verse 10 to a focus on life deeds over life appearance. We have tremendous examples, I think, in our church community in, um, all around us. Women whose deeds make their worship not a contradiction, not hypocritical, but are in real harmony, almost Edenic in nature. In Eden before and in the new creation ahead, worship and good deeds are so wonderfully inseparable and fused together. Humility, meekness, are surprising strengths perhaps in our world, but Paul finds it important to urge the women in Ephesus and beyond toward this. And in verse 11, he writes, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, these are dirty words in our broken world, but they aren't in the Bible. Learning, quietness, we've already seen the merits of those earlier in this text. And God the Son willingly and joyfully submits to the Father. These words aren't to excuse, or, uh, aren't to excuse undue silencing, disinterest in the views of women, or of course any form of abuse. Women in Corinth pray and prophesy and are engaged in church gatherings. And so the quietness is a humble spirit generally, I take it. But Paul applies it in a particular way to women when it comes to two church roles in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Again, this is in a church setting. It seems there are one or two spheres that are not her role. And that seems okay in Scripture. But why does Paul say this? Well, he'll explain later from verse 13, but it draws from Scripture's consistent message about the dignity, differences, and complementary nature of male and female. We need to go way back to the book of Genesis to understand Christian households and church practices. Adam's leading role in Genesis 1-2 shapes the husband-wife roles for the rest of Scripture, which explains the prominence of men in leading roles through Scripture. Notice in Genesis 3, God addressed the man and his wife. Um, scripture here, and Paul here, isn't talking about roles in secular society, where we can have, for example, a, an excellent queen, but this is the context of God's household, which reflects private households. About marriage, for example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that the head of a wife is her husband. That's a surprising sentiment. And the head of Christ is God. And so I take it it would subvert creation's order for a wife to spiritually be the teacher or to exercise authority over her husband in church in a way that she wouldn't do outside the church. That is, the order of creation isn't cast aside at church. So these two limited responsibilities in the church, teaching, and we'll get to what that is a bit more, and exercising authority over men, call upon particular men to take those roles. By entrusting that role to certain men with attributes described in chapter 3 that we'll see next week, 
all women here are called to do what most men are also called to do, particularly in a church of moderate size. So this was my situation before coming to DPC in my previous church. I was part of the church family without particular responsibilities for teaching or for exercising authority. Having been a pastor before I was in that congregation, I was grateful for the work of others who were serving in that way. It's a problem for the world, but it need not be for God's household. So how does this verse work itself out at DPC? The verbs are quite clear, teaching and exercising authority. Um, the NIV translation there isn't as good as it could, assuming authority. The word assuming isn't, isn't there. It's, it's more having authority or exercising authority. But like many prescriptions in the New Testament, not much detail is given, I think, so that the international church throughout the ages can, can apply this principle with the wisdom they have for all kinds of church settings and circumstances and in all kinds of cultures. They create some good space for grey areas that aren't to be resented but embraced. They allow us to think through these things, to have room for some disagreement over them, but to remain united as we do our best to understand and apply them. But God is prohibiting something here. And that is the conversation we need to have. And we need to discern what that is and aim for it graciously. DPC, I think, is pretty typical of Presbyterian churches and churches throughout the centuries. Some have rightly asked at DPC recently, why is it only men preach? I think it's okay for me to say that Janet is a good preacher. Um, I've heard uh, Janet preach at women's conferences and things. Uh, Janet is happy with the position of our church and is in agreement with it. Uh, some of the concern has been for Janet in that situation. It's, it's a love for her, and that's, that's beautiful. But why is it only men preach? The answer, I think, is that preaching is one of the few places I would say teaching uh, occurs to mixed gatherings of men and women. A second question, why are the elders all men? It's because the authority... My notes are a bit rough here, so I'm a bit stunted, but it's because the authority uh, over men exercised in church occurs, I think, through the elders, fundamentally. Now, not all agree that authority and eldership is a one-for-one -one relationship, a match, but in my view, it's pretty close. At most, or all of our elders' meetings, by the way, we've had women present this year to hear and include women in decision-making processes. It's been something we've sought to do as a session. I and the elders have appreciated this development. And I should say, too, that not all the elders hold the same view as me on this, and that's part of our unity in this. Some men and women more broadly across our church see things differently here. And so whatever practice we adopt, there will be those who disagree. Some women would be happy to see women preach, but not elders. Uh, some women would be unhappy to see other women preach. Some men would be happy for women to be elders, but others wouldn't. Some of us don't know what we think. That's okay too. But it's passages like these that are to be the grounds for good conversation 
and not merely what the world might think of what we're doing. In recent years, some local churches have shifted and now say the Sunday sermon isn't teaching. But I wonder what is teaching in church through the ages if it's not preaching? The preaching at Sunday gathering seems the primary place where teaching occurs in church life today. Uh, Today being one example. Arguments that preaching isn't teaching or that women should teach if under a senior minister's authority, I think they're a bit questionable because the, the teaching is still occurring even under someone else's authority. But they aren't positions that deeply grieve me because there is some grey space for interpretation. They do seem suspicious to me that our culture is moving that way and the church is just a few years behind it. And I know that the move is very pleasing to the culture. Our current church practice, which seems good to me, is to have women involved in nearly everything in church life. Prayer, leading the services, kids' talks, Bible readings, interviews that allow women to exhort us as part of the congregation. Perhaps announcements, if if there's time for exhortation there, and other ways we might find in future. Kids' ministry and so on. In home groups, men and women co-lead in our mixed home groups. Groups comprising men and women. That's the way it's been for some years here at the church and seems a good way to go. In case there is still the question, but why Paul? We do know Paul loved women. And we know that women loved Paul. We, we read of it in Acts. We see it in, in the rich language of Romans 16, for example. Paul, is it because women are less wise or able or intelligent? Is it because they're more gullible? And Paul would say no and no and no. Again, I take it. Paul takes them back to Genesis to understand, which is how we know Paul wasn't just providing a first-century fix to a first-century local problem. Point four, Adam, Eve, and the church, verses 13 to 15. Paul begins with an explanatory four. Four, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. The point of Genesis 3 here is not that Eve was more gullible or foolish than Adam. There are plenty of gullible and foolish men scattered throughout the Bible. Church history really is a history of men who make mistakes and women alongside in the process. It's not an I was here first argument, so much as a reminder of the role Adam had as firstborn to lovingly lead Eve. The problem was that Eve took the lead in the first sin. And Adam's fault was that he went along with Satan's temptation of Eve under Eve's guidance. Under God, Adam should have been a godly leader and said no at this time to his wife. But he went along with it. In Genesis 3 verse 6 we read, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Structurally in this passage, the and he ate it is, is, is the climax, the devastating event that takes place, the centre of the narrative. He ate it. Who ate the fruit first? Eve did. Who is held responsible? Adam. Is that fair to Adam? Yes, because he was answerable to God for what they did together. For sin entered the world through one man, says Romans 6, 
And that man wasn't Eve who ate the fruit first. It was Adam, the marriage figurehead. Now, this might explain something you'd notice throughout the Bible. It might have been mysterious to you as it has been to me over the years. Throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, men take certain roles and women others um, in prescriptions, in principles, in patterns. You may have noticed, for example, the patriarchs are male, the priests are male, kings, the 12 sons to form Israel, male synagogue leaders, male teachers of the law, scribes. We've got a male Messiah. We have 12 male disciples who become apostles. And then into the church age, we have male elders and overseers and pastors. It's not because men are any greater, of any greater worth than women. It's because of this creation responsibility, husbands and certain men are given in God's male and female communities. Now, this goes wrong all the time, by the way, because of sin. These men make mistakes everywhere. But the pattern of male leadership in households and in God's household continues throughout as a good ideal, only ever partially enjoyed through patchy faithfulness. And so health is pursued not by ignoring or reversing the creation pattern so much as redeeming it and trying to humbly apply it. Imagine if our world's battle of the sexes could have a ceasefire. Eden's honouring one another replaces it as a much higher expectation and a much higher way of living, a delight and an appreciation of those in our own sex and those of another sex, where men and women, girls and boys, are equally respected for their humanity, where each is honoured with their wonderful differences, whatever they are. This is the way God keeps pointing us. It's been rightly said that Jesus loved women, that he never put women in their place. But neither did he dislodge men from their place, from their ancient spiritual leadership role. Jesus was pro-women, without being anti-men, or failing to train certain men for leadership. Jesus was revolutionary in so many spaces, and women would be thoroughly engaged in church life going forward. But Jesus would select Jewish men, and later the risen Lord Jesus would guide Gentile men into responsibility to teach and to exercise authority in churches. What about verse 15 then, another surprising verse? It's, it surprises too, but it makes more sense with this creation thinking in mind. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. For reasons of time, I realise this is a longer than usual message today, but I point to Janet's excellent home group material that gives more treatment on this chapter as a whole and provides the options for this verse as well. But just in summary, the mention of being saved here has made this verse confusing. But I take it Paul is, is not changing the way people are saved. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But picking up the role that Eve had to bear children, I think he's doing a couple of things here. One of Eve's descendants would, of course, save the world. And so the wording here is saved through the childbearing. A particular event could be in mind. But I think Paul, at the same time, is referring in shorthand to save 
uh, to saved women pressing on faithfully with their responsibilities and unique roles God has given. It's not suggesting that, uh, all, that that's all women do, but bearing children has been through the ages an example of a unique, highly significant role women have that men don't. It's not saying raising kids here, by the way, it's, it's bearing children. And you might accept that um, even more as Christians than perhaps our world does. Whatever our common and unique responsibilities, Paul urges once again the virtues that befit all women and all people. Keeping the main thing, the main thing, verse 15. Love, uh, faith, love, holiness and propriety. Uh, my prayer is that as a church, we can not only get along if we have difference, differences of opinion on these matters, but that our fellowship will strengthen through some of the discussion of differences in these matters. And that our world can see God's wisdom in how we appreciate and honour one another, even with differences of opinion. When I arrived at DPC, and I believe even before I arrived, some understandably wondered how their next minister would approach questions of men and women's involvement in church life. Well, the big picture I have is to pursue women and men for a multitude of ministries and to have a really rich fellowship. Since arriving, I and the elders and pastoral team have been working in this space. I mentioned earlier Romans 16. I just love that picture of a rich cooperation in the things that matter most as brothers and sisters in Christ, where men and women are so united and there's deep affection expressed between them. I've mentioned women helping us at elders' meetings. Some other steps we've taken in recent months um, with God's help, have been pursuing an excellent women's uh, ministry worker for our ministry team. And we praise God for Janet's wisdom and gifts. Earlier this year, we formed, asked men and women to form congregational leadership teams so that women can enrich how each service operates. I've sought to increase the presence of women up front through leading of services, more interviews, as well as prayers, kids' talks, so that we're hearing from men and women regularly and richly in our gatherings. Our committee of management is so heavily reliant on the competence of very gifted women, overseeing such matters as present and future property needs, safety standards, policy development. Women do an incredible job at kids' church, youth ministry, pastoral care. There is so much ministry to do, and we really need all hands on deck. I pray this will continue as a church as we strive towards the health that God points us towards. I want to conclude on this note, but I do want to invite any of you, as is usual, but particularly with this matter, to, to talk to Janet, to talk to myself, pastoral team, elders, a mature brother or sister in Christ, if you'd like to process this more. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you've made us humans in your image. Male and female, you created us. We thank you for the way a man helps us to understand you as an image bearer. And we thank you for the way a woman helps us to understand you as an image bearer. And together there's a rich picture of who you are. Father, there is so much sin in the world and so much sin in the church. 
such painful track records, uh, reasons for grievances, uh, wounds everywhere. And Lord, to the extent we personally or as a, a gathering, as a, as a church family, have been guilty of those things, please forgive us and help us to seek appropriate forgiveness from each other. Uh, Lord, help us also to be gracious and forgiving with each other. And we pray that in the church there might be such a rich display of male and female deeply loving and caring and honouring each other. Uh, honouring each other. Uh, Father, we need your help in this. We need your spirit and we need your word to keep guiding us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.